Hi, everyone. It's Rago. I'm back with Mind Rolling, and I'm here with Jeffrey Mishlove. Hey, Jeff. Thanks Hi. for being here. Pleasure to be with you. So, um, boy, you have a, this, this uh, great uh, show that I saw a little bit of here and there, Thinking Aloud on YouTube. Boy, you have talked to some really incredible people. I looked at it and went, wow, I wouldn't mind talking to him or her. How did that come about? Well, I've been doing interviews since 1972. I started really? out on the radio. I uh, gravitated to television. For 15 years, we were out on the satellite on national public television all over North America. Mm, wow. That's, you know, we have a lot of dissecting things. Uh, a lot of it, really, that's what really struck me, because uh, I, I heard you talking about your background uh, growing up Jewish and so on. And very, uh, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. And so it intrigued me. Where, so tell me, where were you brought up and uh, what were the circumstances? I was born in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. There are Jewish people there? <laughs> 60 Jewish families uh, in the town when I grew up. I don't think uh, there are more than a handful today. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. But there was a synagogue, right? Yes, there, there was a synagogue, uh, and they built a brand new, lovely synagogue uh, when I was a child. Today, it's been abandoned. Mm, really? Because everybody mm. went away. Yeah. So, so how, you know, I can tell you that uh, I grew up in a conservative Jewish family in Montreal. I'm from mm. Canada. I'm from Montreal. Mm. And, uh, I had the, the the best thing I can say about the synagogue uh, was that uh, Leonard Cohen's grandfather started it, and he was bar mitzvah in it, and then so was I. That's my biggest claim to fame around anything. To I mean, the, except for the fact I was drawn by the music because that uh, always drew me, whatever it was. I was really drawn by, you know, a good cantor, and I, I was happy. Uh, the rest of it, I couldn't uh, really relate with. And, um, but I have gone back and forth with it unsuccessfully, whereas I have seen you talk about you have, I think, more successfully navigated coming back to it where it had some real meaning. Tell me about it. Well, uh, that's true. I um I drifted away from Judaism. When I graduated from high school, uh, I had very little um, contact with the Jewish religion for, I don't know, maybe 30 years or, or so. In fact, as I recall, uh, because I was very active in the Jewish youth group, BBYO, as a child, and uh, in my senior year in high school, right before I left the community of Fond du Lac, I gave an invited sermon uh, at this okay. local synagogue, and yeah. my topic was be true to yourself. It's something I actually learned in leadership training uh, in the Jewish community, and being true to myself meant not necessarily following all of the precepts of the Jewish religion that I was 
told to follow. So I drifted away for a very, very long time until uh, one day I happened to be on a cruise and the cruise stopped for eight hours in Israel. And I uh, spent uh, the Friday evening in Jerusalem and uh, Strangely, we were all alone in the Garden of Gethsemane and all alone in the Church of the Sepulchre uh, because everyone else, I guess, was getting ready for for the Sabbath. And uh, it moved me. And when I returned at the time I was living in California and the Jewish High Holidays came along, I somehow felt that Having been to Israel, I couldn't just ignore the Jewish high holidays and treat it like any other secular workday. And so I got very involved in the local synagogue in San Rafael, California, where I lived. And and I, I got very involved for years to the point, even though it was a reformed Jewish synagogue, which is the least devout and the most liberal of uh, Jewish movements, uh, I was putting on tefillin and, and meeting with a, a group of uh, devout worshipers in the early morning for a, a minion to put on tefillin every morning. <laughs> Gee, you're making me feel awfully guilty, Jim, and, i got to tell you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened, though. A very interesting thing came about. I was, of course, doing uh, my broadcasting work at the time. I was very close to a number of rabbis at the intellectual level. Uh, mostly, Rabbi Zalman Schechter, a great mm, yeah, mystical yeah. rabbi, was yeah. a friend of mine. And then my father died. And I went back home to Milwaukee for the funeral. And I have cousins who are very orthodox. And uh, I, on the way back to California, I was in the airplane after the funeral, and I was thinking to myself, well, now that my father has passed away, I'm going to become even more active in the synagogue, and we'll have to have uh, minions and uh, have to sit shiva and all the rituals uh, around the death of uh, a relative. And as I was in the airplane, I heard my father speaking to me, and he said, son, if you want to be more active in the Jewish faith, do it for yourself. Don't do it for me. I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I realized that my teshuva would be the Hebrew word, my return to the Jewish religion had been completed, and, and I no longer needed it. But it was important for me, mm-hmm. uh, very important uh, during those years. And I think the reason is that young Well, I'm no longer young, but Jewish people of my generation have drifted away from the faith in greater numbers than maybe at any other time in history. Hmm. And uh, I have no doubt that the reason for this is the Holocaust, the pain of the Holocaust. I was born in 1946, right after the Holocaust. And when I would go to the synagogue as a child, you probably experienced this in Montreal. The, the adults were all crying while they prayed. They were in tears. They had all lost relatives. So being Jewish, even in a conservative synagogue where I grew up, which tried to fit in, and the, the, the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be thought of as good Americans at, at that time. But the, the sadness and the pain around 
what had happened to so many Jews being killed was um, enormous. And, and I think that's the reason that so many Jews uh, have migrated away from the religion. And yeah. I knew for myself that, that it, it's a good thing, actually, to break free from one's childhood religion, but you have to do it for the right reasons and to do it out of some unconscious aversion to what happened in the Holocaust was not a good reason. Yeah. That, that's why I had to return. Yeah, interesting. I have to say that was not, in my case, it was not fulfilling anything. It was the polarization of good and evil in, in the exoteric part of it. Um, it, it. It lost me completely, and I had, didn't have the wherewithal to go deeper in to the mystical part of the tradition. It was only later that I, I understood that and, and did go uh, forward that way. So, um, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, you know, of course, Ram Dass and, and uh, so he and I and others, when he went back the second time to India to see our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, um, I looked around, especially in the early days, and many, many, many of the people that were sitting with me, Westerners, with this uh, old man in a blanket, uh, were Jewish. And we used to talk about it all the time, like, wow, what? What in the world does that mean? You know, what what is the relationship? What idea do you have about? Because there are many. Look at uh, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, who brought back for Bashna tradition. Right? There's a whole other ex similar example. What do you think is is uh, a reason for this this pull that many people of that faith of Jewish faith had uh, for the East? There, there are so many Jews involved in Buddhism today, they call them Jubus. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I find, tr to be honest, I find Jewish people in the forefront of virtually every field I get into. A a an academic parapsychology, there are a, a number of prominent people uh, who are Jewish uh, in medicine, in law, in real estate, and every activity I have ever been involved in, I have. Uh, found that I'm in the company of Jewish people. Uh, and I think, uh, to me, what Jews are doing in, uh, in the whole spiritual realm and as well as in the secular world, that they are expressing the authentic uh, spirit of Judaism, as far as I'm concerned. Which uh, is? You know, uh, it, let's look at it biblically. Uh, for a moment. You have the story of Jacob, who wrestled with God. He had the dream of uh, the ladder reaching up to heaven, and then an angel came down, and he wrestled with him all night long, and at that point changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which which means, I believe, one who wrestles with God. And, really? and I think that that's, that's the Jewish spirit. Is, is to in, engage in a real uh, struggle with the divine. Mm. I love that. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, let's talk about, because uh, I did see uh, this thing around the notion of actual God is distinct from the Godhead images of any particular civilization. I think you talked to somebody about this. Um, but you're, you've talked about a new theology that would be integrated with science, which is, you know, really interesting. Look at 
look what uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is doing with all these neuroscientists. Um, so, yeah, what do you, you know, of course, all of the parapsychology, near-death studies, reincarnation research, all of that is um, is stuff that we delve into with all of the different uh, podcasters and teachers on Be Here Now Network. So I'd love to get your take on the integration of all of this that creates perhaps uh, something that's uh, a new paradigm. I, I do think that if you look at the cutting edge of science, parapsychology, near-death studies, quantum physics, uh, that we're obtaining a lot of new data and a, a lot of new theories that are very relevant to the field of theology. I, I see this as a long-term project, may take hundreds of, of years in, in my estimation, if we have that long. <laughs> but uh, it strikes me that it ought to be possible to apply rationality and uh, the empirical method to an under a deeper understanding of the relationship between the human and and the universe and um, i'll give you one example mm. uh, traditional theology suggests that god is omniscient meaning that god would be aware of the consciousness of every sentient being in the universe and i wonder is there anything about being human that is like that Probably not. You know, humans are generally not omniscient. But it, it occurred to me that, well, we are composed of trillions of cells in our body. And uh, we know from biofeedback research, we can exert a, a measure of consciousness in relationship to a single cell. We can control the activity of a single neuron, for example, with biofeedback. Uh, that it's possible to become conscious of an individual cell, uh, much in the way God might be conscious of an individual sentient being. Hmm. Well, I mean, we have, again, I go back to our time in India with this particular being. Um, that being showed us over and over that, and I call it, it's sort of an it. We have this uh, new movie about Ramdas, uh, or its teachings of, uh, called Becoming Nobody, you know, and in it, he describes his, he tries to describe what this thing is, that this being is less of a um, a polarized personality, in fact, none of that at all, and he, he, the only thing he could say at one point, he isn't really anybody at all, and so this, I, this was shown to us that the the reality of and possibility of that kind of thing in a human body is real. I mean, we have seen it. I've seen it more than once, actually. Um, and uh, so, how does that fit into what you're talking about, as, a, as in terms of a potential for the future? It, well, I'm sorry. What can you tell me more about what you saw? Just well. Uh, <laughs> um, it wasn't so much a seeing, it was, of course, an experiencing. Um, first of all, there, uh, the reality that this being was not living in subject-object, okay? And uh, the, reality, the other reality that as soon as we got there for each one of us, he uh, w was completely aware of past, present, future. In India, it's called antarayami, knower of all hearts. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so a siddha, which is what they expressed to us, that uh, there was a name for it, not saying, is uh, someone who's able to do that but still be in a body. That's what we experienced. I I see. Well, that's very profound. And, uh, of course, in the field of parapsychology, I've had exposure to many people who have unusual gifts. Now, they're not at all uh, necessarily... Uh, people who profess uh, or who who behave in a, a spiritual manner, mm. uh, like Neem Karoli Baba, uh, they could be very ordinary people who have gifts that we call paranormal. Yeah. Um, I think one of the best ways I could explain it uh, would be this. I had a mentor when I was younger, Arthur Young, he uh, invented the Bell helicopter, and then he founded the Institute for the Study of Consciousness and opened up a center in Berkeley. And when I was a graduate student there in the 1970s, he invited me to move in and live with him for a while. And he created what he called the grid, which was in effect a periodic table of everything. And it showed, for example, the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, and, and the human kingdom. And he, he would say, based on his theory, and I take it to heart, that modern humans, such as you and me, stand in relationship to the human kingdom, to the potential of what human, humans can be. Uh, we are equivalent to what a clam is in relationship to the whole animal kingdom. Mm. So the potential for, for humans is, is vastly greater than uh, what most of modern humans have achieved so far. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, what we experienced back then was uh, highly hopeful for <laughs> And I, as I say, it, it, I have experienced it in more than he, although he had been, because we spent so much time with him, uh, it was, um, we were extraordinarily blown away by such a thing. And, you know, and we were also in our early 20s, so it was really a, a mind bender. Uh, but the potential, I do believe the potential is there. Uh, and maybe we can, uh, we don't have to talk to be all or nothing, you know. Uh, I think that this is something that gradually happens for many people who uh, recognize that there is a path to becoming a better human being, just putting it secularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, and then we start to talk about, which I talk about a lot on, on mind rolling, and that's around what do we do to get to that point where we are stopping this obsession about ourselves and starting to think about other people. Uh, and then you have this, uh, I love this, why am I me? You did something uh, on that. Um, and you, you talked about, I think this is you. Yeah, it is you. Sensations of first being conscious of myself, being conscious of myself are still vivid. Talk about that. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, this occurred to me when I was a child. I must have been about 10 or 12 years old. And we had a big old house over 100 years old uh, where I grew up in Fond du Lac. And as a child, I learned how to crawl up onto the rooftop 
of our house. And I'd sit up there looking out over the treetops. And it dawned on me, isn't it strange that here I am, me, I'm in this body. There's so many other people out there in different bodies. Why am I in this one and not mm. in, in some other body? It was like I, I became aware at uh, an early age of, I suppose you could call it a philosophical dilemma. Why am I me? Yeah. Yeah. I had that same thing and I found it really depressing, Jeffrey, for uh, many years, partially because of the uh, oppressive nature of uh, one of my parents my father in particular, and uh, that uh, the question that we all go through, it's funny how each one of us reacts a little bit differently because of the circumstances that we're in, both in our families and in school and in, in society in general. Uh, so I was like, I became a real rebel. And... Uh, to my disadvantage, uh, actually, it is something that I recognize now in terms of uh, the the times in my life that I might have gone off the rails m more than um, I would have had I maybe fixed this thing up a long time ago or recognized the nature of that. But yeah, why am I me? So what what are your uh, observations about? okay, what do we do to get to the bottom of that and uh, and maybe move to a place where we recognize how much we're invested in our me, our story? Mm, that's a deep question, Raghu. And I, I don't know that I have any easy answers. Uh, and I can't even say I'm optimistic about it. If you look at the human condition right now, you can see that uh, we're dealing with enormous ecological uh, issues. We're in the midst of one of the great extinctions. I think people call it the sixth or the fifth extinction that ever took place on this planet. And uh, uh, the climate is changing. We're threatened with rising seawater. We have nuclear weapons and nuclear waste. And, and one wonders whether the human race uh, in, a, in our present state, whether we have the wisdom and the uh, ethics, the goodness of, of heart and the maturity to navigate uh, through all of this. And uh, the strange thing is that, yes, a, a leap of consciousness, a transformation of consciousness is what's required. And I, I remember discussing this very thing back in the mid-1970s on my first trip to Europe. I met with Idris Shah, the great Sufi teacher, and I brought it up then. You know, how, people need to transform themselves or the human race won't survive. And he said to me, Yes, that's true. But the problem is, if the transformation is based on fear of survival, that won't work either. So, right. so I, <laughs> I'm, I'm inclined to think of it this way. There, there are billions, trillions probably of planets in the universe. There must be billions of civilizations of sentient beings. Many of them will not survive. And in the long run, it would be very nice if humans could transform themselves and, and achieve a higher civilization and uh, spiritually based and uh, 
can survive. But if it doesn't happen, I, I don't think it, it'll matter much one way or another to the universe. Okay, well, that's a little bit of a depressing thought there, Jeffrey. How about if we turn this back into, okay, uh, our business, I mean, this is the way I feel. Yeah. My business is about how do I just every day in working with people, working on just walking around, being a human, how do I feel like I have transformed from uh, decades ago and I feel like it is absolutely possible to uh, to transform in a way that you, I mean, just become, again, I go back to just secular ethics, a kinder person. And, but in spiritual terms, uh, it's not about we do it because we're afraid. We do it because we suddenly see that developing compassion, both for ourselves and other people, is the only way that we can function on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I agree with you. Uh, that's how I live my life. That's how the people who are close to me live their lives. That's why I'm doing the New Thinking Aloud video channel is to have these conversations uh, on an ongoing basis with people. I think that's why you're doing what, what you do. Uh, it's very simple, really. The Dalai Lama once said it uh, in, in the simplest of possible ways. He says, it's good to be good. <laughs> And, and uh, or another spiritual teacher I admire, Rudolf Steiner, once said, mm. uh, take, uh, take three steps toward being more ethical before you take one step toward being more powerful. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, on, on the global scale, I have to say that uh, even though I think that this movement of uh, secular spirituality, you could call it, uh, is is probably the fastest growing segment of the human population. It's still a minority, and uh, and there are many other people I talk to on a regular basis who who feel differently. Who feel that, uh, for example, uh, we are not all one, and we should never even try to think of ourselves as all one. And I don't want to feel compassion for those people whoever they are. I hear all the time from people who they seem to have pinpointed who the enemy is. It's the Catholics, it's the Jews, it's the blacks, it's the bankers, it's the elite. No, it's the poor. And on and on. Everybody has a, a pet uh, enemy. And uh, I think it would be good if people could let go of that, but they seem very, very attached to uh, the realm of duality polarization yeah 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 it is deep and it's deep in many different ways uh, and it's in all of us and uh i am hopeful for those of us that do wake up to the extent that they realize that and they start to do things that can help transform that i mean a, a lot of people have done a lot of great work and have done that and uh and i think in just some simple ways the the, the for instance the mindfulness movement although it's because it's a completely secular thing uh except for the people like joseph goldstein who re really know what that is by the way anybody out there who's listening to this i've said it a million times go get joseph's book mindfulness it's the bible on that and there are things and uh, many a plethora of options in terms of 
of mindfulness that do help us in a daily kind of transformational way. So uh, I, I do think that that's, uh, that is a reality just as much of the reality you're speaking of, which is, geez, there's a lot of ignorance out there. And isn't that true? And, but again, I go, I guess we're, we're, we're having a big of a tug around the global thing. Me saying, Hey, wait, it's just this individual here that we, that's all we can work with to start with. Well, you're in Canada, I'm in the United States, and, and we are facing a very different political environment than, than you're in. From my point of view, uh, let's try to put it in the most positive light, which is that darkness has come up to face us on, on every side. It, it's a great challenge because we, we can see so much negativity, and, it, and it's on the rise, and now it has to be addressed. Uh, it's not easy to address it. It's a political struggle. It's a social struggle. It, uh, people are uh, fighting with their friends and family members about it on a daily basis. We have an election coming up in another year uh, that may, you know, change the direction. But but I have to say, uh, the last three years have been very disheartening for people yeah, no. uh, in the United States. Absolutely. By the way, I am not in Canada. <laughs> I am a dual citizen. I'm in the Los Angeles area. Ah. And um, I am I am going through the same ah. suffering. But I must say about that, that negativity is pushing stuff up out of all of us that you can do nothing but deal with in one way, even if it's just to say, you know, screw it. I'm just going to hate those, you know? Yeah. Um, so there, I guess, I don't know why I'm being so positive. I, I normally be right with you, Jeff. Well, to, to put it on, on a positive side, I'm very inspired by a poem uh, by Christopher Fry called A Sleep of Prisoners. And there's a line in that poem, uh, thank God our time has come when, when darkness rises to face us at every turn. The, the fact that we can see it so clearly now that it's not hidden the, the way it has been in the past uh, is probably a very good thing if we can find within ourselves the uh, strength of soul to confront it. Yeah. It is. The, what did Vince Lombardi say? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of our great teachers. Uh, you know what you got? You got a, a, some really cool. Um, I, I, I'm not quite sure where I found it. That the a website that has a bunch of really great blogs, articles from different people. Uh, it's fantastic, actually. Where's it? Uh, where do they go, Jeff? I mean, we we got to know about this because I was struck by it and and um, I got lost in it a little bit. A website with many blogs. Yeah. Uncomfortable Place of Uncertainty, for instance, by a woman named Margaret Wheatley. And uh, does this... Well, I, you know, I do know Margaret Wheatley, but I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this website. Offhand. It's yours. It's got to be connected with you. We're going to find it and tell everybody in the show notes, okay? <laughs> okay. It's, it's fantastic. No, I normally just tell people, go to New Thinking Aloud, A-L-L-O-W-E-D dot com. That'll get you to my YouTube channel. 
or even mishlove.com will get you to the same place. Okay, well, I found another place uh -huh. that is related to you, and I'm going to we're going to find it and we're going to share it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here, this is a little something from Margaret. I just, it's, it's, I mean, I, I like to turn a little bit to some of the practical things that we can do in terms of our transformational process. And she says, we weren't trained to admit we don't know. That right there, it's everything, right? Most of us were taught to sound certain and confident to state our opinion as if it were true. We haven't been rewarded for being confused or for asking more questions than giving quick answers. We've also spent many years listening to others mainly to determine whether we agree with them or not. We don't have time or the interest to sit and listen to those who think differently than we do. All right? I mean, okay, so here's a good starting point. Let's talk about this. For, I, I mean, uh, one of the great Buddhist things. Uh, around uh, ignorance, they say uh, way worse than the ignorance of not knowing is the ignorance of knowing mm. that is not real, mm -hmm. right? And talk about your own experience with that would be great. Well, I'm <laughs> still focusing on Margaret Wheatley, who, as I recall, is a business consultant. And Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, well, she has attempted to um, apply a lot of uh, new science, quantum physics, and, and so on, into the realm of business. The idea that we are all interconnected, uh, for example. Um, but the idea of entering into a state of unknowing is, is so crucial, actually. Uh, I was inspired uh, as an undergraduate studying mysticism. I came across a, a medieval mystical manuscript called The Cloud of Unknowing. Uh, oh, wow. It, and uh, it's really a very similar idea. Uh, you, you hear it as well. I think Monty Python, everything you know is wrong. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or um, uh. even in The Course in Miracles, you're never upset for the reason you think you are. Right. Uh, you know, when we can let go of our certainty, all these people who are certain about the, who the enemy is, whether it's the Jews or the Catholics or the bankers or the military or uh, the old people or the young people or the elite or the poor, uh, it would be so good if people could let go of that certainty. Mm. Yeah, because it, it traps us every time we feel like we know what's going on. It also implies that we buy into this subject-object duality that we're separate from the rest of the world, that we're not connected to it. Uh, letting go, I think, of, of certainty enables us to reach deeper within ourselves to feel the connections that we have with everything mm. and uh, the, the, this jumps me over to another thing i read on this site uh and it's rick hansen of course many people know who rick is no i have to interrupt you for a yes. second because i have nothing to do with this site whatever it is i don't i don't know who rick hansen is 
you oh really okay yeah, so whether, now it's a real we're we're really gonna do this, uh, this is a mystery to yeah, me yeah we're gonna get to the bottom of this hey hey okay uh <laughs> this is great i love this let me see wait a minute everybody um no i can't find it right away maybe it's just something that happened in the moment that we'll <laughs> never find again okay <laughs> this is great okay rick uh is a great, uh, you know, modern thinker and has written some wonderful self-help books, et cetera, et cetera. But what, what led me to think about what he talked about here um, is this, when we, we talk about, uh, you know, really um, embracing uncertainty. And as you said, how, how r very important that is. And um, I, th I, so Rick talked about, um, uh, uh, to me, uh, would be a, a great, great, it is a great practice for me, and it is something that is so easy for everybody. Uh, and it's about just being able to be in unconditioned stillness. Okay. Because uh, it gets away from I got to meditate, I got to, I got to read a spiritual book, I got to go to a thing, whatever, talk. I, it gets it out of all of that. It is so naturally available to us, right? Uh, he talks stillness, a sense of the unchanging is, is all around us all the time. It's not ultimate stillness, but there's a lovely feeling when the house is quiet and you're sitting in peace, the dishes are done, the kids are fine, and you can really let down and let go. In your character, you have enduring strengths and virtues and values. Situations change, but your good intentions persist in relationship, love abides. More subtly, there is the moment at the very top of a tossed ball's trajectory when it's neither rising nor falling. The pause before the first stroke of the brush, that space between exhalation and inhalation, the silence in which sounds occur, or the discernible gap between thoughts when your mind is quiet. Um, I, I I just really vibed, uh, Jeff, with uh, with what he, he talks about here, the simplicity of it, and uh, and I think this is uh, one thing that is uh, a great uh, uh, it's great advice for people to then start embracing what we just talked about uncertainty. What do you think? It reminds me, uh, actually, of an interview I just did with a philosopher from Chicago named Neil Grossman, huh. another, another Jewish fellow, um, <laughs> about a, a, a Jewish philosopher, Spinoza, who, who was a mystic himself and a, a great spiritual thinker. And what Neil Grossman was trying to get at was the idea that if you look at the reports of people who have had near-death experiences, uh. they all talk about entering into a realm where they're with beings of light, and these beings see them perfectly. There's no hiding. Everything is known to them, and, and there's no shame about it or no attempt to deceive them in any way. If, if you're engaged in a life review process, you, you experience everything you've ever done or said and how it impacted everybody else uh, in your environment. And what Neil suggested 
is that we could create a society like that, a society based on truth, a society where no one would ever try and deceive another person. But he said, in order to do that, we have to get underneath language. Because mm. as soon as we learn how to speak and use words, a young child also learns how to deceive, using words to deceive. So when you can get underneath the words, when you can quiet your mind to the point where you're no longer thinking in words, thinking verbally, you get to a level where uh, deceit is no longer possible. And, mm. and I think that's a wonderful thing. Mm. Hmm. That seems like a good reason why one of our main practices we bought, brought back from India, exemplified by Krishnadas, I think you might know who he is, mm. uh, is, is to just be disappeared by the mantras that were developed by rishis thousands of years ago in that same way. Mm. So I was like, that's a good crossover there. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, so, uh, one thing, I don't know if you want to share this, uh, but I always talk, when I talk to people, I talk about what it is that was the, the moment that perhaps allowed them to expand into, um, uh, a connection to something that's not senses and mind, right? Uh, for me, and I found this in, uh, I was very young. Uh, eight, nine years old, uh, I had a, an experience, an absorption experience, and uh, it helped to just turn me a little bit away from some of the, 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 the just sadness of what the hell is going on here, you know, kind of thing. But there was no way that it could be cultivated because uh, my parents weren't going to understand. I never told anybody about this until actually until it happened again when I was with Ramdas in the Himalayas when he taught me how to do Vipassana meditation, and um, that was that was the first time I really understood what happened. So now you talked about. So, uh, I think you had some dreams that were very much uh, in a similar way. Yeah. Uh, did that, and um, t can you just tell a little bit about that, Jeff? Yes, I, I can. I, I mentioned that after high school, I drifted away from Judaism. I dr went to college, drifted away from my family, went to graduate school. I became more and more of a secular person. And um, in the early 1970s, I had a, a dream, a, a series of dreams that transformed my life, really. Yeah, what I'm doing today in many ways is an outgrowth of the dreams I had in 1972. And in one of them, a great uncle of mine, my Uncle Harry, appeared in, in the dream. And it was very profound. He began speaking to me about my life and using the symbolism, oddly enough, of of the Chinese yin yang. And when I awoke from that dream, I was in a, I it would have to call it an altered state of consciousness, different than any I have ever had before or since. I was singing and crying at the same time. I was singing a Jewish song that's only sung during the High Holy Holidays, Ovinu Malkenu. Mm. You, you, it's yes. a well-known Jewish liturgical song. 
asking God to forgive us. And I wrote home and I asked my parents, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me up right away and said, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? Wow. And uh, so I asked uh, if I could be sent an object that Uncle Harry owned, something I could remember him by. I probably hadn't seen him for over 10 years at that point. And I was sent a book, and it took me a while to figure out what the book was because it was in Yiddish. I had to have it translated from Yiddish. It was the Tales of the Baal Shem Tov, who mm, was no. the founder of the Jewish mystical tradition. Mm. It was only after his death that I understood that my Uncle Harry had been a mystic. Oh. And I was uh, just starting out at Berkeley at the time in graduate school there. Uh, in fact, I wasn't even in graduate school. I was volunteering to work for a professor in the psychology department while I was waiting for my admission uh, to be approved at Berkeley. And so I began asking my professors about this sort of thing, dreams like this. I quickly learned that uh, these brilliant Berkeley professors had nothing intelligent whatsoever to say regarding that kind of an experience. And that's when I resolved, if I'm going to understand what, how to explain what was at that point possibly the most profound experience of my life, I'd have to do it on my own. I couldn't rely on uh, anyone else to help me. And uh, really, that sort of was the beginning of my quest to uh, get a doctoral degree in parapsychology. Mm. Wow. That is a big turnaround. How old were you then? I, I was in my early 20s uh -huh. oh, or mid-20s mid at that point. Yeah. It was about 25. Hmm. Um, I uh, just, I wanted to bring up one other thing that's impo uh, very important. Uh, to me, and I have talked about it uh, a lot. And, and I just found that you have something to do head of the Intuition Network. Okay, now do I have that wrong? No, nope, you, you uh, have that, that right. I, okay. I, I served as president of the Intuition Network for, for many years. I think that uh, whenever we talk about uh, using say, uh, Eastern Hindu Buddhist nomenclature, you know, going into your true self, going into your soul, you know, having uh, Ramdas, as you know, talks a lot about moving your perspective out of ego mind into uh, spiritual heart, all these terms. But to me, the easiest one for people to understand, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is around moving into a place where you're connected with an intuitive space that um, allows you to uh, not be caught in, in the daily glue of believing what you think and your story and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. That to me, when we again, when we talk about it, okay, what what can we do in this really tough world? And I keep saying, okay, well, you got to start here and um, intuition, right? Talk yeah. about that. Well, uh, the Intuition Network um, was an organization that uh, was founded for the purpose of encouraging everybody 
across the world to cultivate their own inner intuitive abilities, their own deep inner wisdom, basically, and to apply it to whatever seems appropriate to them, because I think each person comes in to this world with a different purpose. So for some people, it might be to become an inventor, for other people, a teacher or a mathematician. Uh, for many people, it's uh, to be on a spiritual path, but intuition can work in all of those ways. Uh, so basically, it was about uh, creating conversations where it becomes acceptable, because we live in a society in the Western world in, in general where intuition is underrated. People value emotions very highly uh, to the point where many people, you could say, are enslaved by their emotions. People value the intellect very highly. People value sensationalism and uh, the, the pleasures of the body very highly. But intuition is, is one of Jung, Carl Jung's four psychological functions, and it's the least valued. So, uh, what the Intuition Network has done is created a, a forum where people who are teachers of intuition, researchers, writers, and professionals working in the field of intuition could form something of a support system to, to help each other. And How would you define it, intuition? Inner knowing. The knowing that comes from within, not from without. Right. I mean, in my own case, I have found that uh, the intellectual grip, it loses its grip. And there's something that happens in another part of me that is way more spacious and uh, actually gives me uh, real confidence in the connection to, to what the you know, all the spiritual, the true self and the soul and the spiritual, you know, all that mumbo jumbo. And you get down to the true experience of that which is below. And it's, you know, like we were talking about, it can, uh, it can be way more easily accessed through uh, stillness. Yeah. So I love, that's why I love that article. And God darn it, Jeff, we're going to find out where the hell that site is and we're going to put it up there because I only found it because I was looking through your stuff. Okay. So, 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 thank you for being here too. This is really wonderful. My pleasure. So everybody, um, we're going to, as we just mentioned, we're going to have everything uh, that you need to connect with uh, Jeffrey's work. Uh, and uh, that'll all be in the show notes. So you go to Mind Rolling at the Be Here Now Network, and uh, we shall see you all next week. And thanks again, Jeff. My pleasure, Raghu. It's great to connect with you. 